This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to another Foul Front episode. I am your host, Matt, and joining me as always is Thomas from Hoke Outdoors, and we have a very special guest today, Chris Polk from Poke Pattern Calls. How are you doing tonight, Chris? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, boys. Awesome. Yeah. So, you know, we're getting getting closer into uh, the season, and I'm sure we'll hit on, you know, some teal and stuff like that, but uh, why don't you give us a little background about yourself first? Uh, let everyone know who you are, Chris. Uh, my name is Chris Polk. Uh, I'm the owner-operator of a tiny little call shop called uh, Polk Pattern Calls, and I uh, specialize in teal calls and uh, whistles are my are my my niche. And I, I've got to uh, I've got to say these are some of this is hands down the best teal call I've ever used, honestly. And these whistles are really cool too. So uh, definitely recommend everyone go check those out. And uh, you know we'll put a link up on the Foul Front podcast group so everyone can go see your stuff too Um, but really well made and they sound great and (laughs) i've used them to call in a ton of teal over the years now so yeah yeah very well made um it's it's uh changed the way that some guys have hunted a lot of guys have talked to me and you know they just used to observe teal and hunt passively and and now they really can engage the teal and and it's changed their hunting for them which is it's great on my end i enjoy getting those (laughs) stories come back yeah yeah. I'm one of those people, actually. I didn't even know that you could um, call at Green Wings besides a peep until I heard you talk about it. And nowadays, whenever I see a Green Wing, I don't hardly ever pick up the whistle anymore. It's almost always I pick up your uh, your teal call and blow on that thing. And I feel like I turn a heck of a lot more teal with that than I ever did with just a few peeps. And it's it's the whole season. It's not just the early season that everyone's accustomed uh, with the, the blues and, you know, occasional greens. It's all the way through January. I mean, I've had them setting down across the marsh in, in January and called them all the way across. Um, I've used them for cinnamons. I've used them for everything. And it just really works well, that, that hen call. Uh, they have a slight different pitch, but it's pretty spot on across the, across the species. Awesome. Now what was can... the uh oh sorry Matt I no, said go a ahead. question. Go ahead, Thomas. No, you're fine. Where did uh the pattern come from in polk pattern calls? I've always been curious about that. I uh I grew up next to my grandparents and my grandfather had a uh, a pattern shop and he worked mostly in the avionics and uh and uh space industry. That's kinda where I I was raised by my grandfather. So I, I grew up in his uh, basically a machine and pattern shop right there in San Diego and uh 
so it just kind of carries on his name. He he had Polk Pattern uh, as his shop, his tool and die shop, and pattern shop. And then he built boats and uh, made calls for kids and stuff. So that's kind of how this all got rolling. Oh, that's awesome. Heck yeah. Yeah. So like when I started making uh, my whistles, I designed mostly for kids to take very little air. And I probably gave away 300 calls before I ever thought about selling one. Very cool. So I guess, um, how, how did you get started making calls? Like, so, uh, you know, like, was it just, you know, did, did you meet someone and they were talking about, you know, woodworking or like, how did you start, you know, start well, out, I guess. I think it, it started in my father's shop. Um, he, like I said, he used to make a, a, a really neat little widgeon whistle that was, uh, stamped out of aluminum in the shop and he made a jig and a pattern and it, it was just a perfect widgeon whistle and we hunted mexico and we hunted a lot of widgeon so that kind of inspired me um the wedge calls this the original wedge type of call um, variant has been around for more than 100 years but i just kind of went on my own i uh, never had a, another one in my hand just started tinkering and making a whole bunch of uh what i called fancy firewood and uh <laughs> I started making a ton of calls that were scrap and you know chasing tones and pushing to the point of failure and walking it back and uh, finally found a sound that worked really well for kids because it had uh, a lot of back pressure built into it so kids could blow it very easily with uh, almost no lung capacity i mean very minimal so. awesome so i get you just kind of hit on it and i really want to talk about this because i think it's so cool um you were a guide in mexico correct yeah, um, my uncle was an outfitter, and uh, well, my family had been hunting in Mexico since the 30s, so um, we used to hunt salt marshes along the Pacific coast. Uh, my great-grandfather used to hunt with like John Wayne, Clark Gable, the guys would fly down oh, on the wow. weekends between shoots, and they would come down and, and hunt the salt marshes in Mexico. My, uh, my great-grandfather had a handwritten hunting license. He found a colonel in town that would just said he could go hunt. <laughs> drug, his, <laughs> drug old, you know, old shotguns into the marsh and, uh, you know, real rednecks down in Mexico. But, uh, yeah, they just drove every road um, looking for water, you know, long before aerial maps were available and found little marshes throughout the Baja Peninsula and waterfowl was just, it was incredible down there. Even in my childhood, I caught the tail end of it. But, I mean, it was nothing to see. 40,000 pintail in one sheet water. I mean, oh. just take your breath away <laughs> oh, kind wow. of stuff. I mean, just unbelievable. Holy and uh, so my uncle was an outfitter. Um, we had access to about 187,000 acres um, through leases with farmers and, and agreements. And it's basically where the Colorado sheet water um, finally makes a Gulf of California. So there's a, a lot of uh, agriculture and uh, canals and marshes and shrimp ponds and just ideal conditions for teal that was when the water used to flow <laughs> yeah. into mexico into mexico when the colorado river was still there so uh, on the rainy yeah. years you still get it still get it but. i was gonna say and you know nowadays the aerial maps you can go and look at that area and unfortunately that delta is pretty dried up these days from the looks of it yeah you could go for miles and miles of it was all sheet water you know four to six inches just perfect for pintail and wintering waterfowl is and then our limits were uh, 45 birds a day holy uh, cow <laughs> yeah <laughs> so it kind of puts canada to shame i mean this, the hunting we had it was it, so many times you just put down your shotgun and just watch the show and it's just that and you didn't want to have to carry out 45 ducks <laughs> yeah it gets a little heavy so my uncle ran the ran the outfit and then uh we had a big network of uh, bird boys and local guides, um, mostly uh, farm hands that worked down there. So during the week, they would keep a finger on the pulse of where all the birds were at. And then I'd get them all lined up on Fridays. And then all the guys would come down out of L.A. and San Diego, go down there and just have a blast. I mean, it's six months of, of hunting. Start with white wing and, and dove and then finish up uh, the duck season went all the way to the first week of March. Wow. <laughs> and the birds in March were just unbelievable. I mean, the pintails were, they look like pheasant. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a special spot. Uh, yeah. Every morning, I would take guys out. We'd shoot 150 dove a piece in the morning. And uh, that's, 
that's no BS on the counts. And then uh, we have quail right there in the same spot. The pheasants come in, in the same same areas. And then if you had good wind, we'd go and hunt the sloughs in the afternoon. It's more of an afternoon uh, duck hunting out there. But huh. so how did how did your uh, was your is your is that how your family originally from down there or uh, yeah we have did, like five five started? generations yeah like five generations in San Diego so um my grandfather when he was a kid used to ride the public transit bus with his decoys and his shotguns and just go downtown to the sloughs in South San Diego and go shoot ducks right there in downtown San Diego pretty much and. <laughs> Dang. And the bus drivers may get pissed when his uh, hip boots were all covered in mud, but uh, yeah, they just <laughs> shoot the heck out of the ducks. And then uh, we did a lot of fishing and camping along the coastline. So we'd hunt um, Brant on the coast, um, pintails right in the saltwater marsh. Um, it, it was a neat place to grow up. I, I, I always thought everyone shot a, a wheelbarrow full of ducks every time they went out when I was a kid. So. <laughs> Do you know how your great grandfather got started going down to Mexico or he just loaded up back then it was an open border for the most part and just loaded up an old uh I think it was a, a model A and uh drove across the border. I mean, just no support, you know, infrastructure hardly down there. Um the roads used to take all day to get in, you know, ten miles on goat trails for the most part. I mean <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> And uh, they just kind of followed the coastline and every place he saw a river or water flowing, uh, he would check it out. And we wound up establishing camps and getting leases with like local families to access the property and get in on the coastline. And uh, yeah, they started hunting from the 30s on and some of the pictures and stories is just incredible. My grand, my great grandfather, he used to hunt in San Diego. Uh, Babe Ruth would come out and duck hunt with him. In, in their crew, like Sweetwater Reservoirs and a lot of history in, in Southern California that used to be real rich with waterfowl that it's kind of a shame it's all, you know, gone now. But Yeah, we lost Thomas. He'll hopefully pop back in here for a second. But uh, Oh, you're good. Yeah, Let's get those uh, northern lights messing with the signal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Were there uh, – did, did the locals have any, like, really awesome recipes for waterfowl down there? You know, I'm always looking for, like, new recipes, so I imagine there's probably some good cooks down that way. Oh, yeah, the food's incredible. And that's, that's you know, everyone thinks about the, the quantity of birds where you're shooting. Like, what are you going to do with that? Well, it really helps sustain a lot of the families down there because they didn't have a whole lot of protein options. So um, they would make uh, our, our bird boy, our guy that I knew since I was a kid growing up, his mom made a, a duck mole that was just out of this world. I mean, just Ooh. put it on everything. And then uh, tamales and everything else that's wonderful down in Mexico. Oh, yeah, I'm sure you could just, you know, um, they could cook it up really good, and you won't even know probably. But uh, Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's fantastic. That's awesome. So I guess Plus this is all sports, you know, green wing teal and pintail and, you know, pretty choice. Uh, <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Style, you know. <laughs> Was there any, like, uh, I, I guess I want to say more uncommon ducks down there when you were down that way? Like, I know, like Mexican ducks or models or... Um... We did get some of the, uh, the whistling ducks, yeah. Um, whistlers were rare on occasion. For us, it was it was the canvas back. We, we chased the almighty canvas back because they were so rare for that area. It was like a life's pursuit. And then uh, my grandfather and I doubled up on a pair of drakes one morning. And... Uh, one of the guys in the area, you know, a member of the club, said he'd mount them both. Well, he wound up stealing both birds. He was going to give one back to us, and that never happened. So yeah. it took me like 20 years to shoot another canvas bag to put on my wall. <laughs> <laughs> but then we'd get late-season blue wing. Um, that was super rare for us was blue wing teal because we shot a ton of cinnamon, a ton of green wings. You know, you know, I think for my best night, we shot 126 teal just in one night, me and my cousin. So, I mean, it was oh, uh, incredible hunting because you could have 45 bird limit, but you could have two tags. I mean, it was uh, as, a, as a guide, I always had two tags. And then we had, I mean, the Brewster, I, we've had 60, 60 pheasant days in the same area. I mean, it's all right there in the same valley for the most part. So You mentioned quail, too. What kind of quail do they got down there? Well, um, down in the valley where we were at, like where the duck hunting went, it was the uh, Gambles quail. Um, 
they're uh, they don't have the big top knot in the mountains we hunted the mountain quail the big tall mountain quail that is just gorgeous birds they have like a two inch top knot okay and then we hunted the california valley quail as well very cool so i guess uh now you, you got you traded all of those quail in for bob whites now where you're living currently. yeah <laughs> yeah the quail hunting is a little tough around here these days. that's unfortunately i i know what you mean there i grew up in uh, southeast nebraska originally and you know we we had pheasants we had quail and uh now it's all corn so not as not near as many as there used to be yeah it's um, the, the contrast because we have both we have both sides you know right across the border is laser fields and then on the mexican side that's what makes mexico so special is they have all the they don't have the equipment so they have all the brush and all the structure you know all the habitat for these birds to just thrive i mean it's the pheasant do remarkable down there I mean, just everywhere because they have habitat yeah yeah <laughs> it's remarkable how much of a difference that makes <laughs> Yeah, but we, I mean, you'll see 400 pheasant get out of one alfalfa field. I mean, it's just un- oh, wow. unbelievable. It's hard to walk in, but it's, I mean, the hunting, we hunt in orange groves. I mean, we've hunted some interesting conditions down there. Huh. When was the last time you were down there? <sighs> last time I hunted in Mexico was two seasons ago. So um, I still have a trailer and camp down there, but it's gotten really hard, uh, especially in the, the uh, Trump administration. They kind of were doing a retaliatory thing to make it harder to get your visas renewed and to get down there into Mexico. I mean, I, I used to get permits, gun permits since I was 15. It was interesting when you come back to us customs and the 16, 17 year old kid had a Mexican gun permit, but (laughs) 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 they, uh, they, they figured figured it out. I, I'd I'd see one of the regulars at the U S customs and they'd, they'd tell the other person to leave me alone. Just let me come through. So I guess, uh, did y'all ever, go ahead, Thomas. Oops, you go ahead, Matt. Uh, I was going to say, did you, did you ever have to watch out for any particular crowds down there or have any run-ins with any unfriendly people? Well, um, where we were at was kind of rural. I mean, it's, it's farmland. It's, it's, uh, they even have a Southern like drawl. Their Spanish is, is not no enunciation. They kind of drawl just like a, a Southern drawl is, and, and just really warm welcoming people uh you you get through the border quickly but once you get down into farther into mexico they're just they'll invite you in they'll offer you anything they have in their home i mean these are people with dirt floors and they're just so happy to have you there to give them extra employment and spend time with you it's really a neat neat place but again you have to know what you're doing you know you don't drive down there in a flashy car or every single municipality is going to pull you over and uh <laughs> Hand you a nice big ticket, so <laughs> helps, helps to have an older uh, beater truck. You know, look a little more poverty stricken. But uh, we did have later on, um, you know, some of the waterways the drug cartels used to bring up product. Uh, so you just kind of knew. Um, my bird boys knew everybody in the valley, and I, I kind of had a reputation. People knew me because I stood out because I'm six foot three, three hundred pounds. So. I kind of stand out in Mexico, so they just knew me uh, as the giant gringo. So they they pretty much <laughs> leave us alone. <laughs> and, then, and we also carried a, a little bit of dead coyote tungsten just in case, but n- never had any real issues. Mostly like you'd hear low flying Cessnas in the dark with no lights on, stuff like that. But they stick to their stuff, and I'll stick to mine. But yeah. one of my favorites favorite hunt spots actually was a. Uh, a big sinkhole and uh, it always held water even when the Colorado didn't flow. And I, I had so many 40 bird hunts in there. It was just unreal, but they started using it as a marijuana grow operation. So (laughs) it made it a little sketchier to getting in there and uh, all your gear would be all sticky and stuff. And then, uh, and then back in San Diego in high school, they had random uh, drug dog screenings. So uh, my backpack always blew up the old, the old sheriff department uh, (laughs) canine unit. So, Jeez. Now, uh, I guess, but you kind of just gave me another idea or another thought for a question here. Can you use lead down there or just, is it steel shot too? Or is there any it's regulation? Steel it's steel shot now. Um, it's not super monitored because they just don't have, I think they have two agents for the entire state of Northern Baja. So, <laughs> I mean, it's, there's not much support for them. 
But yeah, growing up, we just shot lead. We shot 20 gauge lead number fives, one ounce loads for, for everything. I mean, it just clobbered everything. I mean, we shot a lot of speckle bellies down there and those lead fives just hammered them. I mean, it was, it was the, it was the load back in the day, but uh, we, we got used to steel later on, but for the most part, most of my career was lead. <laughs> Would y'all hunt the speckle bellies down there over fields or over water mainly? Um, a little bit of both. We'd, we'd hunt them in some alfalfa and then over real, real shallow, shallow sheet water. So you just try and find one little scrub salt cedar and hide behind that. And, but we had a lot of 20, 30 bird days, you know, in, as an individual, like I, I remember one of my best hunts, I think I shot over a hundred birds. I was 12 years old and my grandfather and my uncle drove by me in the airboat because I had so many birds piled up. They didn't recognize where I was at. <laughs> Cause they left me right next to a little salt cedar, but now I had this pile of birds and they, they thought I was just old, like, uh, uh, shrimp traps down there. So they just like, we just drove by. I'm like, I started, I didn't have any ammo left. I just completely shot everything I had. So I'm just waving my arms like an idiot. And like the third pass, they finally, they finally recognized me. So, uh, for like spread wise, what, what would you run down there? Just mallards or did you do different confidence decoys? Or Pennies. We, we would run like maybe six widgeon and six pintail. I mean, you did not need big spreads. You know, when you're where the birds want to be, uh, minimal calling, um, concealment is everything. Um, we, we had some, we used to do the barrels back in the day where you could bury the barrels in the sand and then uh, hide in little sneak barrels. Uh, that was real lethal. My uncle caught a pintail by its foot once. So oh, wow. <laughs> it was a fun experience. Um, we used to hunt a salt marsh uh, that had harbor seals that would stay on a sandbar and the pintail would eat the salt grass in there on that sandbar, but there was not a bit of cover in there. So my grandfather and I put our wetsuits on because we used to dive a lot for abalone and lobsters. And we just sat there on the sandbar in our wetsuits looking like fat harbor seals and the pintail just came right down on top of us. So we both shot 18 a piece and just sat there picking bull sprig, like just one at a time trading oh, off. It was, it was, that, was, that was one of my most memorable hunts. It was, it was a neat, neat thing that my grandpa came up with that idea. So that, that's definitely one of the most unique hunts I've ever heard of. Yeah. I mean, they're uh, five yards. I mean, they just right on top of you. They thought you were just the Harbor seals up there on the, uh, on the sandbar. There was just, there was no question. There was no, no commitment issues whatsoever. Uh, we didn't, I, uh, we didn't even have decoys. We just knew exactly where they were hanging out and they just right on top of you. So. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. It was, it was a neat childhood. I, I didn't realize it. I don't think I fully appreciated it until I was older and until I moved to Midwest and I was like, Oh wow! I really did have something special down there. It was it was magical. So, did you feel like you had to get as concealed down there as you do in the U.S. these days, or could you get away with more? Well, we did have. I mean, we're at the end of the migration for a lot of those wintering birds, but I mean, we did have the California flyway, so like that has a long history. Uh, the Sacramento Valley, you know, up by where like Titus hunts and stuff. There's a long history of clubs and stuff, so they did have pressure um, concealment. It, it was it was important sometimes. I mean, sometimes when the birds wanted to be, you could just be standing out there. It didn't matter, you know. Like like even now, if you can do get some of those hunts, it's just like you're out there setting decoys and they're setting on top of you. But yeah, concealment's always been important, and then movement, just not being able to move, you know, just without being seen, helps a lot. But it wears scrub brush and stuff, so sometimes we'd be in t-shirt and shorts, so it's kind of hard to conceal, but. Awesome. So now, now you're in Missouri. How did you end up there? So I went to high school here and then, uh, moved back home to San Diego after high school and then kind of moved back chasing, chasing my wife. So it's my wife's fault. She's a teacher. <laughs> here. So she's got a lot of roots here, a lot of family here. And it, my, my brothers stayed here, um, when we moved. So it, it wasn't too hard of a move for me. I, I do like the Midwest. I miss, I miss the ocean, but, uh, Midwest is nice too. So are you uh, finding any birds over that way or, you know, I, I just probably, got a report probably, from my, just got a report like from Mexico, my buddy. But... <laughs> yeah. I just got a report that the teal are starting to show up uh, in Northern Missouri. So excited, you know, for sightings, but you know, it's different. It's still that passion still there. You know, you hear those wings overhead in the morning. It still gets you just as excited, you know, might not be as many and not as many pintail, but it's, uh, 
it still gets you all juiced up, ready to go. You know, especially you know, you get those big bunches like you guys saw last year. Those teal. I mean, oh, yeah. sound like an F eighteen cutting the wind. You know, it it gets you going. Oh yeah, it won't be much longer. We'll have hopefully have them if we if we can get some water up here in Nebraska. We're really dry, but <sighs> that's a shame. That's a shame. That's not much we can do about that, unfortunately. No, not not much. How's the water looking out there? Are you Thomas? Are you been home? No, it, it's pretty incredible. I was out in North Dakota this past weekend, actually, and uh, oh, okay. I think I saw more ducks in two days than I probably have in my entire lifetime combined. I mean, it it was pretty incredible. I, I drove a lot of miles. I spent pretty much the whole two days of the weekend driving, but uh, every little quarter acre half acre seasonal wetland like there was so much sheet water small wetlands up there that there was none of that last year when i was up there and uh every single one of those like 20 30 blue wings and probably a hatch of mallards on each one so just incredible numbers and uh lots of lots of broods everywhere lots of gadwall broods so i'm sure matt will love to hear that too <laughs> oh, yeah <laughs> I love Gavall. Uh, something about them. Uh, they're a special duck to me. I get, I'll get all mad every time Matt passes on. Uh, there he goes. Oh, yeah. Tourist over there. <laughs> I'm in the I, same boat. So I was, I was very glad. Like it, it was really surprising too. Cause all the Gadwall hens I saw just about pretty much, I might've seen a couple small brews, but pretty much every single one had between eight and 12, um, eight and 12 young, young. So, Looks like oh, there will be a very strong flight of uh, young dumb gadwalls this year that'll be all over Matt's decoys. Hopefully, nice dirty up his to... uh, his 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 limits there. Huh? I might have to shoot a few, I guess. <laughs> Get your green sock; you could slide over him or something. You know? <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> I actually, that's one of my favorite tips I give guys. Uh, people ask me about calling and, and the whistles and stuff. Uh, late season. Um, you can do a gadwall note on my whistle and, and any whistle, um, just that two note little beep, you know, the little gravelly little, uh, Meh. gadwall call. Yeah. The little, Meh. Meh. Uh, they do, they do it dirty. The mallards eat it up late season because nobody, not many people do it, but they, they commingle. I mean, there's gadwall in a lot of those bunches, you know, and you'll see them in with the mallards on a regular basis. And I've had such good luck, uh, late season, just just using the gadwall to you know, to just finish mallards right in your face. And it works really well. Huh. I've yeah, never tried that. It's it's lethal. So. Speaking of that, Chris, uh, do you want to do a couple calling demonstrations? I'm not sure how it'll sound over the mic here, but we'll see. Sure. Yeah. Um, you can talk some teal tips and uh, maybe teach me how to do a pintail whistle because I cannot for the okay. life of me figure out how to do that. <laughs> so. can you... Yeah, it's a little different on, on the multi-whistle. I'm sorry, Thomas. Go ahead. I was just, I was just gonna poke fun at Matt. I, I didn't know that he couldn't do a pintail whistle. I have a couple of friends who can. It's like I've tried and tried to tell them all you gotta do is flutter your tongue. And See, uh, I can't do it that. It seems though. like some people just like <laughs> physically cannot flutter their tongue. It's, I'm, it's I'm tough. <laughs> yeah, I've got a fat tongue, so if I'm, I'm in the same boat. I mean, I can do uh, the pintail whistle pretty well, but I don't know if that comes across at all. That sounds pretty good here. Yeah, yeah, that's so that note there, but like, uh, so my five and one whistle, uh, the standard mallard tone, the thing that makes my whistle a little different, a lot of guys have a two hole on top and you can't really modulate the sound. Mine, I hold just like you do your J frame, like this, so you can just change your back pressure. So you. And then that 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 uh, gadwall. So it's just like you're doing the Drake, but you just do two little notes. And the mallards just they dig it. They do. They really do. Huh. And then uh, do you want to get in the teal call since everyone's getting ready for teal? Yeah, let's let's do some blue wing teal calls or and cinnamon. Okay. It, um, all the hens will do the day crescendo. So the, the call that everyone knows and does, it's basically like a teal hail call though. So everyone keeps repeating that. And I think that's problematic. It's not natural the way like you wouldn't do a hail call the whole time. So that's the, ah! 
So you don't you don't want to go too fast. It's not a super fast. You can if you're you know really just trying to turn birds. You know if you're shouting across you know half mile out, you give them the kitchen sink. You know you just let them have it. But that soft little day crescendo. Is that coming across okay? Is it blaring you out? No. And then, uh, I think it sounds good. Okay. And then when you're finishing them, like, once you once they turn, a lot of times when they're on the water natural, they just do little, just like a mallard would. They just, they do a two note and then a single note, and they'll just sit there and put around on the water. All the teal will do that. Of course, the blue wings tend to be the loudest of the bunch, but that's how I finish them. Once they turn, I'll just, You can, like like my whistle, you can modulate the sound. A little bit higher pitch um, works better for the cinnamon, but uh, the little lower is uh, more for the blue wing teal. But on that pintail, you just, you just, uh, you got one of these five and one whistles. That's the only time you mess with the hole. You just cover that up and it's just, okay. it, you just want to barely, it's not a rolling the tongue. It's just using that tip of the tongue to just... Just a flutter. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> maybe maybe I'll send you one of my Mexican calls. Uh, that's uh, that's airproof. He's actually made in Brazil. It's an old one, like my grandfather had. And does that have a little roller inside of it? It's got a little wood dowel that flutters around in there. It's like the original, the original teal uh, or a pintail called. It's called a Murillo. It's uh, made in Brazil. Yeah, I need hmm. one of those. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it's pretty much just uh, plug and go on that one. But they they're harder to come by. You kind of have to know people. <laughs> and I guess I'll just add since people will be listening to this and can't see what you were actually doing in there but when you're saying modulate the sound you're just talking about cupping your hand or moving your hand for the most yeah part, just know? like yeah just changing the back pressure um changing how much you're letting out how much air you're blowing through it just and then throwing the sound you know like like you do what over any kind of a little speaker or something just in, giving on a microphone to carry farther out you know you can just get a lot more volume. A lot of guys just hit that whistle and they just they get a single a single ability out of it because they can't cut the air off because the design of the whistles. Mine's the only one that has back pressure where you can really change the sound of the of the drake to sound like multiple drakes on the water because they're they're pretty noisy if you sit like a, a refuge or something. You'll hear those drakes just going back and forth, back and forth. You know, and then you hear the hands chime in, but the drakes communicate more than the hens do. I think so. For sure. I, I've definitely seen that. And to add to your point about the crescendo, when I was out in North Dakota this past week and I was listening to a lot of teal and I definitely heard probably 10 times as many single quacks and double quacks as I ever did. You know, I, I heard some crescendos, but very minimal in comparison to just uh, light, light quacks. Yeah. And that first week, you know, these, these new birds, you just give them any, anything you want. I mean, you just hammer on them They're, most of the time that's going to get their attention. But as this season progresses, you want to call teal all the way through January. That's get a little more natural. Those little two notes or single notes, you know, if they're working in, you don't want to get that and you don't want to locate you, you know, like any kind of calling, you know, you just want to finish a little bit quieter. Now, is it the teal call that you can also do divers on? Yeah, yeah. So my teal call. So here's the teal. Now, if you you really have to cut down the air, and you kind of have to give it a little bark to it, but it sounds uh, bluebills, uh, redheads, canvas backs. I've turned lots of canvas bags. Canvas bags are actually very callable. I mean, I've I've okay. shot at them before and called them back around. They're they're very susceptible <laughs> to calling. Not many awesome. guys do it. I think a lot of guys are just used to setting up on points or whatever, and just whatever comes by at seventy miles an hour, that's they're going to let them have it. But uh, <laughs> they're uh, they're very 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 callable. Um, redheads, you know, all the diver species. They're you know they're social critters. You know, they really are. So always helps to give them a little something. 
Yeah, especially because, I mean, they have to find through food through their counterparts for the most part. So I think a lot of people over, overlook the calling aspect of divers. I've never been very successful with it, but I've always tried it. Yeah, it's worth a shot. I mean, and it's, you know, if the birds, if you're where they want to be, yeah, sometimes shutting up and just sitting there watching them come in is the best, best method. You know, I'll never, as a call maker, it's not a, it's not a golden bullet for anything, you know, but if, if like I hunt a lot of big public areas, like my public uh, teal marsh will have probably 60 other parties in it. So I sat there and churned birds all morning long because I was hammering on its opening day. And they just ate it up. And then I got five guys waiting in my truck. What are you blowing? Like, Best kind of advertising. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and I, I, you know, I always try and let, you know, birds work, but it's a, it's a, it's a madness kind of event. You know, some of those public marshes are just so it's like, it's like Nebraska. I was surprised to hear that you had such little public access. I mean, I, yeah, you have to work for it. You know, it's, it's crazy. Yeah, so I guess uh, let's about hunting public land and you being a call maker. Um, what is I guess the number one tip, just overall, or number one mistake you you would consider you hear other people on the marsh make? Um, you know, in regards to calling birds, are they overcalling or just wrong notes or? Yeah, overcalling. I mean, I I make calls, so you, you know, I, and I've like I've sat there with Jim Ronquest and and sold calls all day long because we both work with upper duck uh they they carry our calls and we do a couple shows together and he's like yeah i scare away as many birds as you call in you know when those days when they just eat at the calling and you just feel like you can do no wrong and it's like gets you all excited about calling again like yeah you could do it throw anything you want at them but uh most of the time here they've heard everything um i think a lot of people are just hit the j-frame all the time and hail all the time and they don't work on the subtleties of, of the quacks and just mixing it in and sounding like multiple birds. Even when you're hunting by yourself, just just sounding natural. You know, I, I tell people all the time, they're like, what what tips? I'm like, go to the marsh in March. The birds have relaxed, they're mating, they're doing the courtship stuff, but you just hear all the vocalizations. And, and you'll hear the hens and stuff, but you just you hear those drakes, you know, a lot. And I, I'm real, I'll get real aggressive with the whistle because your drake whistle is so quiet and subtle anyways, you're not going to blow out your ducks. Just generally speaking, they're going to react really well to it. So I, I like the whistle a lot. Um, and then uh, on my hails, the only recommendation I would do is don't bring your hails down. Because when you're calling quarter mile or more, you're wasting that air on the bottom end. So, I mean, it's not natural. I mean, the hail is just, a, it's, let a rip so just keep it all at the high and we like we hunt the mississippi river so we'll be calling birds off of guys in illinois i mean we're it's that competitive going across the state lines and <laughs> and we break them from a half mile out but after that initial we get just real real it'll be complex at times you know with my brother and i calling but it's all natural just really you know soft notes um good good little feeds i think a lot of people's feed calls are off I, i've never heard a bird do a machine gun feeding call i just don't think that works i think it, it works good for people that like to roll their tongue but for me it's just little cuts i think that does it's just one of the best finishing just Just little tiny cuts, you know, none of that. I mean, you can let it roll and it sounds good to your ears, but it sounds terrible to everybody else. So that's probably my number one tip is just, just go real soft on the, on the feeders. Like it's a great filler for between notes, but just ease it up. You know, less is more on the, on the J frame, especially. One thing I've noticed when I've listened to Drake's in the marsh, um, especially in, in the, during that springtime. And I'm wondering if you ever try to replicate this is it seems like they kind of, uh, seems like a wave almost like the whole, you know, one Drake will start off talking and then all the others will start chiming in and they get really loud and then they start to taper off. So do you ever try and do that with the Drake whistle or, or multiple people when you have multiple people in the blind or is it kind of just filling in with one or two wherever possible? 
there's times when I won't let anyone touch their J-frame. I'll just, we'll just run whistles. I mean, you can really, within 250 yards, I can I can work a 40-bird group with just a whistle. I mean, it's not always going to work, but if you really spend time in the marsh, like uh, you'll hear the hens because it carries. You know, they're loud. They're making that bark. But the drakes are always communicating. They just, they're always flapping at each other, always sitting there you know, chewing on each other during the mating season or, or during the migration. They just, you go in those timber holes. I don't know if you guys get to hunt timber holes much. I know Timber uh, Thomas has got a couple of spots that are like timber holes, but you can hear him back in the woods. I mean, you just listen to birds all day long, you know, in the middle of season. They're just sitting there and the drakes are just hammering on each other, sitting there squawking each other back and forth. That's, that's a male bravado thing. I don't know, but uh, I, I, I think they communicate way more than the hens do. And I think the whistles are way underutilized. Awesome. Uh, Thomas, you got any more? Oh, man, I have a bunch. Hopefully, I'd love to get you back on, get you back on very soon, Chris. Um, Oh, I'm stoked to be here. I really am, guys. I appreciate the the offer. And I love what you guys do. That's why I always, you know, I reached out to you guys to send calls up because, I definitely like the style and the way you guys do things and kind of changes the tone for more realistic in how most of us hunt, you know, public and private opportunists whenever we can borrow and cheat our way into some public or private dirt, you know, but (laughs) now, uh, and I can cut this out if, if you don't want to do this anymore, Chris, but were you, you mentioned a giveaway. Are you still interested in doing that? Oh no, yeah, I'm totally, I'm totally on board. Um, okay. If somebody wants to, however you guys want to uh, find a winner, um, I'll make a teal and a matching uh, whistle okay. set, and um, I'll I have like five or six different choices of wood, so something I can match whoever wins, uh, kind of match something to their liking as far as uh, woods are concerned. But yeah, yeah I'd be more than happy to help out. Yeah, appreciate it. Um, I think what we'll do is we'll just. Whoever likes when we post this on Facebook in the Foul Front podcast group, and then make sure you like the Foul Front podcast group. Um, we'll you know let it go for like a week, and then we'll draw and announce the winner and get you set up for teal season. So be awesome. Yeah, just uh, have them have them hit me up, and I'll I'll make it to their specs and their finish, and get them something that'll last them a lifetime. Sweet. Uh, you want to tell mm-hmm. us where? For the, for the unlucky people who don't win, <laughs> where they can get one of your calls at, Chris? Well, um, you can just reach out direct to me uh, on Facebook, Polk Pattern Calls, um, or on Instagram. I think that's how I found found you, Matt, and reached out to you. I'm sure other people reach out and you're like, oh, God, here's another guy. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, either of those avenues or um, uh, a local company, which is like 12 minutes from my house, is uh, called Upper Duck upperduck.com they do like a lot of the high-end um custom guys uh like raggio and then uh, layers and then limited edition rnt stuff well they uh they carry my whistles and my teal call so uh just a little shack call guy guy gets to roll with the big boy sometimes and uh, <laughs> sell some calls so all right well thomas you got a few more questions then Oh, I was gonna. I definitely do, but my internet's so spotty today that I don't want to. I have a couple of the questions I've asked. I haven't even got to hear the responses of. So, uh, like I said, I'd love to have Chris on again very soon. Hopefully, have a lot better internet then. Oh, yeah, I'd be happy to come back. Hopefully, I don't go off on too many tangents you know, and get a little too excited about the call sometimes. No, that's awesome. No, this awesome. this has been a, this has been a great podcast. Thank you very much for coming on. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess I have one. Um, what what would be like your favorite wood to work with? I know you do all kinds of like exotic ones. Yeah, um, I mean I love the way that uh, like Honduran rosewood burl. Um, it just looks incredible. There's just so many directions, and but it, it, it's like I've had so many heartbreaks with it. I've had it blow up. You know, you'll have like a such a rare piece of wood, like a fifty dollar chunk of wood, and just explodes. Like you're like oh. 90 percent done, and then like. Like, oh, I just want to take a little more off here. It just blows up in your face. And most of the time, my wife will hear me shouting from the uh, the shed slash uh, chicken coop shop that I have. And uh, she thinks I'm losing a finger or something, but it's just a piece of wood that I blew up. So uh, <laughs> Honduran Rosewood's my favorite. But the one that got me into uh, call making um, 
is desert ironwood. Um, uh, a lot of the big boys like RT, they wouldn't make one out of ironwood because it's kind of a pain. It's such a dense wood. Like most of the woods I use will sink in water. They're so dense. So that's, that's the one that it's just a rich, beautiful grain and, uh, it's dead, dead standing harvest. So the trees are six, 700 years old, the, the wood that I'm turning. And, uh, when they have storms in the desert, the, uh, the sand embeds in the wood. So you get this little shine and that gloss that comes out in the wood because it grew over with sand in it over the years. So that's, oh, that's, that's awesome. special. To, it's special to me. That's kind of, and I used to hunt over in Sonora where a lot of the wood comes from. So that's kind of special for me. That's, that's the one that I, I like the most. Is that the hardest wood that you work with or is the rosewood a little bit tougher? Is there another one? No, desert ironwood's pretty hard. Um, I do some denser woods, but the hardest, that's probably the hardest is the, uh, the desert ironwood, the African black wood's real hard, but, um, it turns a lot easier. The grain doesn't seem to catch you as much as the, uh, the ironwood oil, but ironwood's hard to beat, you know, a nice oil finish on it. Just, I mean, it's, it, it just feels right out in the marsh because you're out in the wilderness, you're out in the woods, you're out in the marsh, wherever it might be. And just, it's not plastic, you know, it's, it's part of the earth, you know, it's, it's kind of a neat connection. So. Oh yeah. So, um, I guess maybe just a few more here and then we'll let you, let you get on with your Monday. Um, what do you have any like favorite or have you done any like local woods? Like I know, uh, Missouri, you know, you've got probably walnuts and hickories or oaks down there. I guess I'm not really too familiar with all the trees down there, but like local, more North American, midwestern type trees cedars so we have yeah we have a lot of the hedge so uh you know bodark you know uh so hedge wood's a great tone wood that's the softest wood that i turn though which is actually relatively dense uh walnut you know everyone thinks walnut's super hard and dense and it's like sponge compared to most of the woods that i use anyways for the for the tone boards and stuff so it's on the softer side of things but I'll, i'll use like uh some nice local stuff for um I'll do you some black walnut for for some deer grunts and things that don't require the density of for volume and tone and to get everything right. And then a lot of times with the whistles, you're going into the side of the grain, so you need a real dense, hard grain to make that a nice clean hole for that tone to hit just right as that air goes across it. Okay. Yeah, if we see uh once again southeast Nebraska we we had a uh, hedge all over just crazy. My dad, uh, he actually makes bows like long bows and recurves. And so <laughs> that's what I would do growing up. You know, we'd go in the pastures and cut them and cure them. And then he'd uh, whittle them down into bows over time. But I never, oh, yeah, that's, that's <laughs> never awesome. got into that. So yeah, that those old fence posts, a lot of those old fence posts were all out of hedge because they were so strong. And like a lot of those 80, 80 year old fence posts are actually, awesome hedge like they make really neat uh old you know calls and nice green dark rich color to them and stuff those old aged hedge so every once in a while i'm on the lookout for somebody's fence posts i can yank out of the ground but <laughs> farmers don't like it too much <laughs> i know the uh they use them quite often in the sand hills you know it's uh fairly dry so they don't even have to really worry you know it hedge lasts forever like you're saying so it, yeah, they're yeah. fairly prevalent up here. It's just kind of a pain to staple into, I guess. But uh... yeah, I can imagine it's pretty dense stuff. But it's it's neat, you know. I like taking uh, you know flame to it. I usually do the the flame finish on the hedge to bring out the color. But all the calls that I give away to kids, um, like I'm making like 40 calls for opening day. Um, my son's starting to hunt, so we're gonna do a youth hunt, and I usually surprise all the kids in the room with uh with some hedge whistles to start off and start helping dad calling ducks awesome very cool well i think that's probably a good natural point to end it i don't know where thomas went he kind (laughs) of jumped out hopefully uh his audio will come back so hopefully he's out there uh, scouting ducks for you for your trip (laughs) (laughs) yeah he he saw a goose fly over or something he's gotta go find out where they're roosting for us so you're gonna go hunting with thomas or that's hopefully the plan is uh we're you know we're gonna i don't know he's gonna go out opening day and i think at least most of the first part of the week unless he shoots too many (laughs) um i'm looking at coming up that first weekend though sometime so we gotta kind of figure out 
figure out our plans that from there. So, but he's supposed to be scouting for me. So <laughs> perfect. Well, yeah, he probably knows a few of the farmers up there. That's that's the key. Yeah, I'm just excited. Even if I get one goose, I'll be excited. You know, just uh, a new bird or a bird in a new state because I've never I've never even been to North Dakota before. So it'll be. Oh really? That's not too far of a hop, skip, and a jump for you. No, I was just uh, just looking up it earlier this afternoon, and like from where I'm at to, I don't know, you know, eastern North Dakota is like ten and a half hours. It's like that's not really anything. So just wake up and go, man. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm ready. You know, a one week from today, season opens, so it, it'll be go. nice just to get after him. Perfect. I'm gonna come hunt teal with you, but hey, I don't know if my 21 year old truck will make it up there this year. Any any Maybe time you want to, you know, canvas backs, teal, mallards, whatever you want to, you're more than welcome to join me up here in Nebraska on a hunt. Just let me know. Awesome. I would love that. Yeah, love to love to have you out here. Someone who can call birds. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you do a fine job. Fine job. Uh, I do a little critiquing from my my workshop and, and uh, when I'm watching your videos on my my breaks at the hospital. But uh, no, you you seem to do just fine on your numbers. So and they're, they're <laughs> neat call, they're neat haunts, man. I really appreciate you putting them up there and putting yourself out there and keeps us going on during the weekdays when we're all stuck at work, hoping <laughs> to get out there. Yeah, I appreciate that. So, all right, well, I think we'll call that a uh, call that another episode. Thanks everyone for listening, Chris. Thanks for hopping on. Like Thomas said, I'm sure we'll have you on again in the future here. Um, maybe go over some more diver call tips later on, and just mallards and all that good stuff. Uh, but uh, yeah, thanks for thanks uh, for jumping on, and uh, we'll see you. Fantastic. Hope you all have a great season, and uh, yeah, let me know who the winner is, and then we'll get you all set up. Will do. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, mule there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.